Hello and welcome to the People, Place and Nature podcast. When we talk about sustainability, it's easy to forget that some of the challenges we face in creating the greener, more sustainable world that we're after lie in people. I don't mean in the sense that people are the problem. In this instance, it's actually the lack of people which is the issue, as we don't have enough people going into the professions needed to actually deliver this future that we so desire, especially when it comes to young people. And that's what we'll be talking about this week with our guest, my friend, Sophie Beasley. As if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be standing here as she really helped me get back into education and into the environmental world to begin with. So really she's responsible for this, this series and most of the work I've done. So a huge thank you to her for getting me on the right track and joining us. It's important to remember that sustainability doesn't just relate to the environment, it relates to your finances as well. That's why we switched to Beans Accountants Beans operate on a package system, so you always know where you stand. We halved our accountancy costs when we moved to them, and one of our associates moved to them as well and reduced theirs by two thirds. With free tax advice, accountancy support, and everything else they offer, you can't go wrong. So make sure you check out Beans Accountants in the description below, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. Sophie, fantastic to have you with us today. Um, I've been really looking forward to having you on because you are one of the most important people, if not the most important person, for me being sat where I am now and for doing many of the things I have done. Um, you know, we met um, through a youth conservation project for the Wildlife Trust. And, um, you know, you really introduced me to a lot of aspects of the natural world I didn't really know about or hadn't really experienced. And I wasn't always the best behaved child, shall we say. Um, so you really helped me there and you got me, you got me back into education. So I'm really, really pleased to be able to have you on and to talk to you about some of the work you've been doing. Um, so Thanks for welcome me. to the show. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> So, yeah, I really wanted to just talk to you a bit about kind of your background Mm. and how you got involved with the youth conservation projects with the Wildlife Trust, because they were really interesting. And there were lots of kids from all different backgrounds Mm. there, some with various challenges and issues um, and how they changed over the program. You know, even me being only 16 at the time, I really noticed people change Mm. a lot. And I'd just be really interested to hear your perspective on it. Mm. So... um... Yeah, they were mostly vulnerable young people. It, it was a project set up um, funded by the local council, by the children's services. Um, at the time, there was quite a bit of money available um, before the recession. And the Wildlife Trust wanted to... Well, the education is, is key, isn't it, in conservation. It is really important. You can't just go ahead and make those conservation decisions if people don't understand what you're doing and they're not behind you and not involved. So. Yeah, that, that aspect of it was really important to the Wildlife Trust, and it still is. Um, and so they, they gained funding to, to start this youth project. Um, and the idea being it was, it was quite a local project. There was two areas, one down the south um, of Hampshire and the other in the north of Hampshire. And um, the idea being that these vulnerable young people would be able to reconnect with nature. And that was, you know, that was the key. They were quite urban. Um, youngsters, a lot of them didn't know, well, they didn't know anything about the outdoors. They didn't know what creatures were what. They didn't, um, they'd probably never been to the sea. You know, they're really far removed from maybe what I would have maybe taken for granted. So, um, yeah, the idea was to get them out doing conservation tasks, um, day-to-day practical things. Mm-hmm. and. It was, uh, in my opinion, a total success, I mm. think, um, to have that experience of reconnecting with nature 
does something to people. And it certainly, as you say, it did something to those young people from whatever backgrounds um, they came from. Um, so as you said, some were really quite tricky. I don't know if you remember, well, I'm not gonna obviously name names, but I think there were, there were certain groups that were specifically sort of young offenders and things like that that would right. come out that wouldn't have been in, in the group you were in. But, you know, they would come out with a lot of attitudes right. and, and a lot of kind of um, conflicting ideas about, you know, whether they should actually engage or not. So a lot of the work I was doing was just getting them to relax and, right. and enjoy what they were doing and trusting them a little bit. I think that was a big part of it. Um, giving them tools which were considered, you know, maybe a little bit dangerous to put in the hands of young people that were a bit, you know, out of control at times. Um, and giving them that responsibility really to, to go and do things like scrub cutting and yeah. chopping down a tree and having a fire. And, yeah, and that's it, what I love. Absolutely. I bet you have memories of, of the smoke, the flame, the excitement of like, and not just excitement, like the hard work, like all yeah, of those yeah. aspects. Well, it's rewarding, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, you actually see what you've you've done at the end of the day. Exactly. You can look back. And I was talking about this recently because I work in an office now most yeah. of the time yeah. and, um, you know, designing lots of really cool projects. And okay, yeah, you get to go and see the project done. But actually, it often takes so long for you to actually yeah. see the end result. Yeah. Whereas here you get an immediate, um, you know, visual cue yeah. that you, you've done something Absolutely. you know you, and you know when you get to burn stuff it's brilliant you know you're never allowed to burn things normally being able to burn all this stuff is, is fantastic and finding out the importance of fire and yeah. how yeah. learning how dangerous it actually is it gives you a whole different respect and mm. understanding of these things doesn't it and it gave us the opportunity to then really talk to the people that needed those lessons as well mm. so if they were young offenders you know there's the chance not to paint you know paint pictures but there's a chance that they're the people that are going out and maybe lighting fires for example mm. so to to give them the responsibility and teach them about appropriate fire use leave no trace mm -hmm. all the looking after the environment things and letting them also kind of be custodians somewhat so once they have protected that area specifically if they're coming back to somewhere week mm. after week and looking after it they then hopefully, when their mates go, oh, let's go and hang out here and light a fire, they're going to be like, oh, I've worked really hard here. Yeah. I'm going to stop them. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to do that. So there was that direct impact as well. So it wasn't just all about the young people. Mm -hmm. You know, it, there was there was a, a double benefit there. So the, the sort of local green spaces were getting some benefit, not just from the volunteer hours that we were gaining from the young people coming out. But, yeah, that, that message and that feeling of, I understand it now. I want to protect it now, which mm. is what I'm all about. It's it's that I want to teach people. I want them to connect with nature so that they go out and protect it themselves. Yeah, definitely. It's so important. And so much work now is about fostering ownership and that mm. type of thing, especially in urban environments. But I think the one thing it really gave me and some of the other more difficult people that mm. were there as well, um, they you get a real sense of sort of vulnerability and you mm. realise your kind of own limitations as well. Because you, I remember quite well there being some people there who were trying to cut down, me included at some times definitely, but trying to cut down really big trees or yeah, whatever yeah. it was. And you think, oh yeah, this would be easy. And then actually <laughs> you, you think, oh Jesus, it's actually really, really hard. Yeah. Uh, especially when you're doing it all by hand. Mm. You know, and then you scratch yourself on something and you think, oh, actually it really hurts. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, and people sort of realise that actually you need 
to work as a team to be able to do yeah. some of these things. Teamwork, We've got to be careful with some of the tools. Yeah. So many good skills like that came out of it. You you were in a really great team that was, you know, you came out every week. Uh, mm. Actually, how many times were you coming out? No, I don't eventually. Know, every day in the end. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, dropped, I dropped out of college um, and I wasn't particularly great in school. So I dropped yeah. out of college. So I had a, quite a lot of spare time. Mm. And then um, I had a few jobs. I worked at McDonald's for yeah. a little while. Um, <laughs> no I worked <comment>. at Tesco. <laughs> um, I actually quit my job at McDonald's to yeah. come volunteering because I just, there was a point where I just thought, actually, it's just way more valuable. Mm. Um, you know, Luckily, I didn't need the money because, you know, you were picking me up. Yeah. Well, that <laughs> so was, I didn't have that to travel anywhere. So it was really yeah. lucky, you know. And yeah. when we did meet, um, when there were general pickups, I could sort of, I live quite in the, near the town centre, so I could walk in. Mm. Um, so I was quite lucky in that I didn't really need the money at the time. And I was doing other odd jobs here mm. and there. And um, I started doing bits of gardening and stuff for people as mm. well and odd little things. Um, so I was quite fortunate, really, in that sense. But, um, you know, what I got from it was fantastic. You, you showed a big commitment to the project. Um, and it's no surprise that you are where you are now because hmm. you say, oh, that, that was so important. Um, and that's great to hear. But you've come a long way and you've seen, you've got that, um, you've been able to see the benefit of, of the steps you've taken and, hmm. and you committed to it from the start, which was amazing. And, and from that, you did loads of things on the project. So you, were, you got the Dutton Award. Yeah. You yeah, were nominated for the Dutton Award because you started volunteering with, um the wider trust you were in some of the other teams there mm. um you did remember there was like the wild summer program so i set up there was a summer project oh yeah yeah so yeah, there yeah. was like a two-week intensive um summer project where a selection of of the young people that had shown some promise and real sort of strong interest started um they well they came out for two consecutive weeks to do all these slightly more mm. in-depth and interesting things and you were helped on that you were like yeah. youth leader on that so, yeah, that was part of the project's goal. You know, we were trying to encourage that um, as well as getting people that were ne not, not necessarily going to become conservationists. They were just mm. vulnerable young people that needed that connection. There was also that element of trying to actually, you know, find some conservationists of the future somewhat. You know, there were people that showed promise and the hope being that, you know, they could then maybe take one of our traineeships or do something mm. like that. So, yeah, it was great. People like you were really great aspects and really helpful and, and took the project forward as well. You know, you, you kind of influenced where it went somewhat because mm -hmm. we could then think about, well, what can we do for these people? John Muir Award, you did like all three stages of that. And, you know, that was all like brought in somewhat because you were pushing for it and it would have helped you. And that yeah. was, you know, it was great that it was that kind of organic change in the project to, to help whoever needed helping. That's it, exactly. So, yeah. yeah, it was sad it came to an end. It's... Yeah, it is really a real shame, yeah. real shame. But, it, you know, I think, you know, some of my friends had ended up coming as well yeah, yeah, um, and, yeah. and getting involved who also weren't, some of them had dropped out of college and mm. things too. So, um, you know, that was really, really good to get them involved and a lot yeah. of them, you know, really enjoyed it. But there's lots of other rewarding things as well. You know, there was lots of um, extra sort of curricular activities we did. We did. Like when we went to sort of Spinney Hollow and um, yeah. spent a lot of time making... Um, in camping in the woods so and green making green woodworking. Yeah, green woodworking, yeah. making tools, bushcraft making... type stuff. Did fire yeah. lighting. We did. Um, I don't know if you were involved in something, but we did flint napping. We did. Uh, gosh, there were so many. Um, hurdle making. Yeah, hurdle making. Hurdle yeah. making. That was awesome. Stool making. Stool making. Can't remember. I actually, so well, I actually went back actually after um, we did the stool making one. Yeah. Because um, I kept in touch with the people, yeah. and um, we went up and made a. Um, 
flat bow. Oh, so we spent yeah, um, spent five days. It's amazing how long it, again, it gives you a totally different appreciation of how much time goes into making yeah, things. Because yeah. we spent five days and basically started with um, a huge pole or yeah. a huge chunk of tree. And we had to sort of knock it down with axes and then start shaving it down. And it just took absolutely nice. ages and wove the um, string together and then found all the right bits of wood to make the arrows and heated them and rolled them over oh, the fire to shape experience. them and yeah. fletch them and all this type of thing. And then we got to try these bows out at the end, yeah. which were pretty tough you know even yeah, yeah. again you know you think at the time i was in my peak really you know and i, I like to think and i was sort of there straining away not able and i could barely pull this bow back yeah. you know and um all of us were there struggling you know mm. trying to fire these bows but um it was a pretty impressive you know experience and there's so much reward in all, in all of that you know the, the barbecues we had when we were out being able to yeah. cook over an open fire and all these experiences make you like even if it was a volunteer that came out for one day and that was the only chance they had i'm confident that it would be memorable to them enough that you know it would stick in their memories and influence them somehow mm -hmm. however small i think it, it was a project that made big change to individuals and i think that's really really important definitely mm. Definitely. And I think, you know, as I said before about giving people sort of um, responsibility mm. and, and all that type of thing, it was really interesting to see how different people responded to it. Mm. Because yeah. some of the people like me, which are a bit louder, um, a bit... Confident. Okay, confident. Yeah, let's say confident. <laughs> yeah. um, and then there were other people who were a bit quieter. Oh, very many. Very, yeah. very, very quiet. And they didn't really want to ask for help. Yeah. They just kind of would go into the furthest corner and, and work away. They, they always really impressed me. There were a quite a few regular volunteers that were painfully shy, awkward, mm. silent. There were, there were not, not non-verbal people, but there were people that were, you know, they, they didn't really communicate with anyone else in the group. And that was fine. And nobody, the, the camaraderie was amazing as well, because mm. they were always people from different areas. And nobody would, you know, mind that that person would just be quietly getting on. No one would, you know, have any problems with each other. Everyone would just understand you're all there for a common cause, which was amazing. Mm. But those, those quieter people, they always slowly came out of their shells, not yeah. to become this, you know, brash, confident person. You know, no, no one can work that kind of a miracle. But like you said, you always saw change, you know, and there's that development and that confidence that comes with with doing something many times and becoming comfortable with it. And that kind of repeat engagement was was really important to some people. And, and it was wonderful that they had the opportunity. And talking about something you said about the transport earlier, that was a really big part of it. It was essential that we had transport for those people that otherwise, you know, they're stuck in their rooms, quite often playing computer, watching TV, doing whatever. Most of them, well, they were all neat, which, meant not in education, employment or training. So they were all totally disengaged. Mm. Some were more vulnerable than others, but everyone wasn't, you know, they weren't doing anything with their time. So to give them that transport, to be able to get them to the places they needed to be to do this project was, was really vital as well. So yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. It's so changed a lot of people. It has, it has. And it's just seeing people come out of their shell, again, is, is really rewarding, but it's mm. the kind of, what for me was really valuable was being able to be there for a, a prolonged period mm -hmm. of time mm -hmm. because you got to see the people, you really got to see people change. Mm. Even, but then sometimes some people that came for the day, even even over that day, you would yeah. see, you know, where they come and they wouldn't know anyone, they'd be a bit, Just a bit more shy. Just at the end, like yeah, going exactly. home, that like buzz of, of Exactly, and also it's physical, so you've had a bit of exercise yeah, and all yeah. of that type of thing too. Yeah. You know, yeah. really, really important. Yeah. Really important. So, so why did it all come to an end? 
funding, funding or, always yeah. the funding problem. So uh, the Hampshire and Isle of Wildlife Trust um, is a charity. All the projects like that are reliant on, mm. on what funding they can get. And it was uh, council funding, like I said, children's services. So um, the recession struck at that point. Gosh, don't ask for a date. 2000, we were at, you know, early 2010, 11, 12, around that time. I can't remember that exact year it ended, but yeah, the money just wasn't available. We had apply mm. every year and that it just it just came to an end and there was nothing we could do. Um, you can try other funding streams, but it, it, it was a specific project in a specific area. So it was mm. very difficult to find an alternative, which is a great shame. Um, yeah. But more projects have happened since, you know, that I'm not currently, well, I'm not with the Wildlife Trust anymore, but they continue to do amazing work in education with forest schools um, and with like a lot of mental health work. So mm -hmm. sort of taking people to the forest and working with, with young people and, you know, even all ages to, to um, experience the outdoors and connect them with nature. So it continues. One little project comes <laughs> to an end, but it continues. That's it. Yeah. And there's, there's lots of other places that are doing similar things, Absolutely. you know, lots of farms. My mum used to work for Lavastoke Park yes. Farm and they had a visitor centre, which they took lots of inner city kids to. Excellent. So they came out to the farm to see sort of farm life and get a bit involved. And again, you know, it, it surprises me and I think it would probably surprise a lot of people mm. um, that are listening that, you know, so many kids actually just have no engagement with the outdoors. I remember my mum would come back and tell me because she worked... Um, she didn't work with them a great deal, but mm. um, she sometimes took them to the bit of the site she was working on. She mm. was in charge of the compost sites and things. And um, she remembers the people there saying, you know, they'd ask the children, who's seen a tractor before? And <laughs> sort of one kid would put their hand up and go, me, me. And they'd go, oh, where did you see a tractor? And they'd say, oh, I saw it on TV. Oh. And actually none of the children had ever seen a tractor. And Mental. then um, one, of the, one of the funnier, well, for me, funnier ones, was um, they went to the butchers. And um, a little girl said, oh, where does the lamb come from? And the butcher went, oh, there's lambs out there. And she threw up oh, on the counter because no. she'd never realised that lamb was lamb. Oh, that you know? huge connection. So, That's um, a hard one. You know, it's really, it really yeah. is shocking. And a lot of you know, children didn't realise um, that food didn't mm. just come from supermarkets. It grew mm. somewhere. They just thought supermarkets made food, you know. I do wonder, do you think it's changing? Do you think people are becoming more aware more recently with say social media or do you think it's an urban countryside divide or um hard to say I like to think it's becoming more common yeah but that's probably because I'm much more involved in it that's now, the thing it's hard it, yeah. to be take a judgment when you're so involved in it I think it's hard it to see the other side it is but there's also so many projects you yeah. know there's so many sort of urban food projects um the big thing that worries me is schools um, I still don't think schools are um, really doing enough to get kids involved. And here, it should here. be a part of the curriculum. Here, here. And we had Merrick Denton Thompson on, um, fantastic guy. And he founded the Learning Through Landscapes Trust with yes, Sir David Attenborough. Yeah. Um, so he was talking a lot about that. And Rob here, our cameraman, he actually went to one <laughs> of the schools that they founded yeah. um, and set up. So he's got, you know, some fantastic experiences of that school. Amazing. Um, and, you know, it really benefited him. And it's really interesting how... Now we're starting to bump into so many yeah. of these people that have yeah. done all these interesting things and the commonalities there. Um, I, there. I think, well, I'm pretty certain there's work being done currently to, it's, uh, I can't remember if they call it a natural history. I think it might be just called natural history, but the, the GCSE is coming. Mm -hmm. They are hoping um, to have uh, that kind of natural science element coming into school. 
I think that's too late, GCSE, personally, but mm. it's something. And I think you're absolutely right. It's absolutely crucial that it starts in school because you can leave only so much to a parent and mm. that, parents are responsible for most of a child's life. But schools used to have a real, it wasn't much else, to be honest, but schools used to always be about nature. Mm. You know, they, they talking Victorian times really but you know you'd go out you'd do a nature walk you'd pick things up you'd take it back to the classroom you'd learn about it it was mm -hmm. easy it was your local area people didn't go far because they didn't travel far but it was all about just understanding what was around you and just that connection and it's gone you know yeah. I mean you do I have kids they do welly walks and, <laughs> and we're very fortunate we live somewhere quite rural so nice. um they do have that connection and I'm not going to let them not have that connection, to be honest. But yeah. still, some schools have forest school engagement, many don't. Mm. And ultimately, if those teachers are not interested in nature themselves, they're not going to pass knowledge to those children just automatically. You know, it should just be an automatic connection. Mm -hmm. I know about these things and, and we're talking about this, so it, it means this in nature or, you know, just, just all those links. If if we're gonna all if we're gonna always be taught by people that don't have that knowledge because they weren't connected, who's who's gonna teach these kids? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's it's very tough. Yeah, exactly. It's it's kind of a downward spiral it's, really, yeah. isn't it? Where does it um, yeah. And that's that's the real the real challenge, and, you know. And a lot of more a lot of urban schools, um, they have real problems now because, um, again, I think Merritt talks about it on the podcast with him, but they've removed the sort of statutory protection for playing fields now. Wow. So there's a real risk of a lot of the playing fields on schools being removed. So kids might actually lose some of the only outdoor space they have, which is Crazy. tragic. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's it's such a disaster. And you know, the only option really, I think, as I said, is is for kids sort of in schools to to get more involved. Mm. But it doesn't have to be. A forest school you know it can just be lessons outdoors and all this type of thing yeah um you know we used to love having lessons outside mm. um, i was quite lucky because our school had some big playing fields mm. um because we were in a bit of, not rural but we're in a town um and um you know that was really great when we did that but it was very very rare yeah and there's so much evidence now to show that kids actually learn more effectively when they're outdoors that bullying tends to be less mm. this type of thing and they're a bit more respectful and attentive mm. even though you'd think they'd be more distra more distracted it's not really the case absolutely um, the case. and there yeah. tends to be less stress as well so there's a huge range of benefits and again some of the work that, that merrick's been involved with mm. um you know they've now got guidelines to teach 80 percent of the curriculum wow. outdoors yeah so you know all that stuff's available we'll mm. put it in the link for this episode um, so people can find it um, and you know it's a huge resource for teachers but I think the problem is awareness again partly why we wanted to do this series is there's all this stuff is going on but you often just don't hear about yes, it yeah. which is the real problem mm. um, you know and that in itself is a, is a real challenge. Mm. Yeah yeah I think we have to target people at all ages you mm. know there's, there's only so many people that are preaching the word of conservation and you know and that the importance of nature but it is growing like monumentally i think everyone is waking up to the fact we've got to do something yeah. and the problems that we're facing i think you even you know the smallest children in schools are being taught about you know make sure you recycle plastic in the ocean all those good messages so if we if we get those in even you know if it's a science lesson and something's mentioned just just getting it in in whatever little ways we can mm -hmm it will it will start to have an effect and we've you know we've seen that like young people are starting to stand up and look towards the future and you know 
Greta. You know, we've all mm. seen we've all seen the movement of young people standing up and doing what they should be doing, um, and good for them. You know yeah. that we uh, we're <laughs> aging now. We need to um, hand over that baton and mm. and support them to to lead forward now. So that's definitely, definitely really important. Yeah, it is. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think it gives. Um, you know, the one thing I've thought a lot about is what one of the main things I kind of got for it. And I think it was purpose, really. It kind mm. of gave me a purpose mm. and like an objective and something to kind of work towards, which has sort of driven me forward since then. Mm. And I think that's what a lot of people end up with. Yeah. And I think, I think it's what a lot of people have realized they've lost. Mm. You know, talking to a lot of my friends who are a bit depressed or don't know what to do with their jobs. So they, you know, it comes down to a crisis of purpose, I think, a lot of the time. Um, and I think this is an area which offers huge purpose and promise and all these type of things which will really help people i agree um but it's just getting them engaged well that's that's the reason i went into conservation it i was in an office mm-hmm. <laughs> i was in in that place where i went to uni i, I actually came from an urban environment right mm-hmm. under the flight path of heathrow airport <laughs> uh but there were pockets of nature mm-hmm. you know and i was very much aware of them when i spent time in them you know, it, I, can, I can feel how it felt. You know, there was a small meadow near our house. There was some cana- like canalised rivers uh, to next to the airport. Mm-hmm. But I would go down there with a dinghy and it, it was probably cleaner than it is these days. The, mm-hmm. the airport's grown hugely. But mucking about in the river, you know, that connection with natural elements, water, the, the grass, the trees, all of that was there, even in an urban environment. And I'm sure it's shrinking, but hopefully, you know, that connection stays with people. And then, you know, I got older, I did normal routes, went through university, didn't really know what to do. But something inside of me was still connected with nature. And then worked in an office, did a lot of traveling. That was a big influence on my life. And just got to the point where I knew that I had to get involved and I had to change everything and retrain and get involved in conservation. Mm-hmm. So you did it a bit earlier than me, but <laughs> I think a lot of people are doing that. I think mm. it's not unusual to reassess when you are in that office environment, in that boring drudgery of life to want something that is fulfilling and Mm. like you say kind of gives you not an instant boost but but a connection it's always the word connection come back to me (laughs) yeah i hope you've enjoyed the episode so far here's a quick message from one of our sponsors make sustainability a priority throughout the design process with a suite of tools built specifically for landscape architecture and design VectorWorks gives you the freedom to follow your imagination wherever it may lead. With remarkably flexible software that integrates BIM for landscape and GIS workflows, sketch, model, and document in a single tool with the world's most design-centric BIM solution. Discover VectorWorks landmark and design without limits. Visit VectorWorks.net to learn more. That's it, definitely. But you, you know, your background from there on was really interesting. You know, you've been all over the world. Um, you looked at things in Borneo. So could you talk a bit about some of those yeah, experiences that yeah. helped kind of push you down this route? Yeah, so, oh, it, you know what, I was thinking about this the other day. I had a stack of National Geographic magazines mm. on my bookcase in my room. And it was a tall bookcase that went right up to the ceiling. So I couldn't necessarily access them all the time. But I had a, 
a cabin bed so I could see them all the time. So I'd think about them a lot. And one of them had on the front cover, and this was in the 80s. I was born in 1980, right? So there was, it was an issue from like 1980 or something. Um, and it had a, a bowl, like a washing up bowl, a baby orangutan and a baby in the bowl. And this picture, I just, I just love this article. It was all about Baruti Gaudacas, who is um, an orangutan. Well, she's very famous. She, she led the, um, the, she was one of the leaky um, girls. So the, the three, Diane Fossey, um, uh, I forget her name, very famous uh, with the chimpanzees. Mm. I'll come back to it. Um, and Baruti. So she was the orangutan lady who went out to Borneo. She was a young girl at the time. And they all did their bits. There was the gorillas, the chimpanzees, and um, the orangutans. And this just this article just blew me. I just remember thinking about it a lot. Mm. But then you forget. It doesn't mean anything the rest of your life. It's just a thing and it becomes one of those memories. Anyway, while I was at uni, I, back then we didn't really do year out. That was mm. a sort of a little bit later on, but I decided during my summer one year that I would travel, like properly travel. I think I'd been one place before that on my own, sort of not too far away. I'd only ever been on a plane once, not with my family because we didn't do planes. I've never been abroad in my family no, ever. No, no, it was, it was just, you know, it wasn't the thing. Mm -hmm. So I, I went through all the adventure brochures and just dreaming what one can I, I can pick anyone I've saved up and I can pick any one of these adventure trips. And I picked Borneo. I was like, it's got everything, orangutans, caves, bats, rivers, the Ebon people, the local tribal people. And I was just like, I can't, this is just the most amazing thing. I'm gonna just do it. And I, I signed up for it and I went, and I went to Borneo and I was 20 years old, which now is probably quite old. Like, you know, everyone goes now, but it was quite a thing. And it just changed my life, like mm. unbelievably so. It just opened my eyes and I mean, I knew about all these places. I had an interest in the world. I had an interest in it all, and obviously in wildlife. Um, but it was just books and, and TV and David Attenborough and all, you know, everyone's got that interest. But going to Borneo just did something. Whatever it was, it was like, wow, this is the most amazing place on earth and I want to come back here and be here forever. <laughs> So that was kind of like, I came back and that was it. I wasn't that interested in uni anymore. I realized because I studied graphic design, mm. I was like, I'm not sure this is for me. It's kind of cutthroat, not very really nice, not really interested in it, but I finished it. Um, but then I just got a normal boring office job. But everything I earned, apart from bills and things like that, was savings went towards travel. Mm. And I traveled and I traveled and I traveled. And got to the point where it was like, well, and just traveling and seeing these places and witnessing these conservation efforts and doing these bits and bobs. I can't keep doing this. I need to be actually making a difference somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that's when it was like, okay, I'm coming home. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to retrain. And yeah, it was, it was the best thing I ever did. I'm mm. sure lots of people will agree. You've had a lot of changes, a lot of. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah it's important to change. Change is, is important. It is. Yeah. I mean, I did sport at school. Um, and I really didn't 
well, I didn't really do much at school. <laughs> um, my predicted grades were U for some of my lessons, um, which is ungraded. So, um, yeah, I wasn't, I did okay in the end, yeah. but not as good as I probably should have done. Um, and then, yeah, then I went to college and studied sport and just thought, ah, sod this. I'd rather just not do anything. Yeah. So um, I dropped out of college. Um, then obviously I met you yeah. um, and started doing conservation work and I got involved with all of those things. And then, again, like, like you just said, it was kind of like you, you want to make a difference and you kind of want to do something. And I always kind of wanted to do something more, but yeah. I didn't know what it really was. Yeah. Um, so then you got me to go back to college and thank you very much for that um by the way um you know you got me back into college so I studied forestry yeah and then same kind of thing I, I became a member of the well, I was invited to go to an event by the Royal Forestry Society which is fantastic and everyone should join it it's amazing um and really really interesting went on a few talks and walks and that's where I met people like Ted Green who's also been on the podcast um and a few, quite a few other interesting people and I found out a lot about the natural world and the mm. issues it faces and I kind of thought well actually this is great. And I kind of went into, into the work. And then I, same as you, I saved up a bit of money and I found out about this trip to Costa Rica. Oh, yeah. um, but it was to learn about how they had approached regenerating Costa Rica because it only had about 20% forest cover. I can't, I can't remember any of the dates, but it had a very, very low forest cover, not massively higher than what we've got here. Um, and now they've got 70 something percent. Um, phenomenal. So we went and we looked at the programs and things they put in place to try and regenerate the environment there basically um and that was fascinating mm. you know and a lot of it came down to water in the end so they, they came up with lots of ideas to try and restructure sort of the country and the way i understand it is basically they had this problem of everyone was cutting the trees down mm. and so they decided to go in and they went no one can cut any trees down anymore we want to have a greener economy we want to try and regenerate the country no one can cut any trees down but then no one could make any money off the land so because everyone was living off the land because it's basically a third world country. Mm. Well, it is a third world country. So people were still cutting all the trees down to grow pineapples. And they kind of realized that this just wasn't going to work because people had no choice. Um, so what they did was they decided to find a way to pay people for the services the land provided. So they basically figured out that they had huge potential for hydropower. So they thought, okay, we want a green economy. Um, based around tourism and that type of thing. How do we get there where we've got to regenerate the environment? How do we fund that? Well, it's hydropower. So they put lots of investment into hydropower. And because it's rainforest and mm. lots of water comes from tree transpiration mm. that people don't realize, um, that the, the trees actually produce water. Mm. So they invested in the trees to produce the water to power the hydro, and they paid people for that service. And that premise, um, ecosystem services, is basically exactly what public money for public good should or will be mm. here. So... And, you know, I was very fortunate that, that I found out a lot about that early. And that led to me talking to a lot of people later on in my career in the government of various other places. I'm not saying I had really anything to do with it. But, you know, I was constantly saying, well, actually, surely there's got to be payments for these things and all that type of thing. And obviously, thousands of other people were doing the same thing. And, you know, people knew about it all over the world. So, you know, those things sort of really started to filter through. And that those kind of experiences, seeing the problems they had and how we really have similar problems here um, was really helpful. So I managed to take a lot of those principles forward. And then I came back, worked in forestry. Mm. Um, and then I went into project management. No, sorry, I went into project management um, after that. And I, I got to be on site doing lots of things, but it was mainly for developers, just yeah. clearing sites and yeah. destroying things, really, which mm. was obviously not what I wanted to do. But I wanted to learn the project management side because they're involved in a lot of the actual practical side of things and seeing how things go. So I got involved with that. 
Um, and then I got meningitis, which sort of put, every, put a massive hamper on everything, as you do. And it kind of really messed me up for a few years. And I kind of mentally as well, I wasn't quite right for a while, I don't think, looking back. So I basically lost my job and then went back into forestry, but couldn't do that because I wasn't well enough and I was very sick. I, had, you know, I could only work half a day for a week, otherwise I'd be, and then I'd be crippled for the whole week. Um, so I decided, okay, what can I do with the three years I've got? Um, I can do a degree. So then I found out about landscape architecture and did that. Mm. And, you know, that's how that kind of sometimes went really. Sometimes it just falls into place. Sometimes you've got to make the changes. Sometimes they just happen. It's almost, I don't almost like, I love change. Like it's really important to me. And I'm probably the most settled and stable I've been throughout my life in terms of like wanting to change things and try different things. And I think that's quite healthy. I, mm. I'm quite, keen on expanding and and seeing how far that we can go and learn i'm into learning i'm into change and learning making sort of things come alive and and, mm. and not just kind of reading about them and learning in that way but you know actually thinking well i've, I've learned about that and i, I want to know it and i want to do it and i want to experience it so yeah i guess yeah when i went back to train it was it wasn't that I, I wanted a degree I didn't I didn't want to get a PhD I didn't I wasn't interested in mm. that I just wanted that stepping stone to get out in the field and do it was all about the doing so I did like a, an HND I don't know what the equivalent would be this these days still HND is there still HND? I think so, yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, it's the equivalent of like a foundation degree. So it's kind of like that first part of a degree without the dissertation, something like that. So it was quite, you know, it was intense. Um, and I loved it. And I knew that I'd done absolutely the right thing. I was a mature student, probably, actually, there was someone older on the course. You know, it's one of those things that draws a lot of people back into it, mm. I think. Um, but it was it was awesome, and it, it gave me a really good foundation um, to then find work. But coming back to that Borneo story, that's where I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. I just had at that stage, you know, I was just like interested in rainforests. I was interested in orangutans specifically for some reason. There was, you know, everyone, you know, they're quite enigmatic. It's easy mm -hmm. to be interested in them. But just generally rainforests and that's that tr the tropics, that kind of, that habitat, that ecosystem was of real interest to me. Mm -hmm. So yeah, as soon as I finished my course, I was like, right, I need to find a job out there. Very fortunately came across an advert almost immediately. Um, to do some a seasonal job um, out in in Indonesian Borneo. Mm. So Borneo is divided into two parts. You've got Malaysia at the top, and then the big bottom half is Indonesia. And um, they said they'd have me. I went to interview and mm. was very fortunate to get the role. And so, like within a matter of two weeks, I think it was. I was like, I had to be out in Borneo. <laughs> it was amazing. I'm like that is so me. I love it. Mm. I love that kind of spontaneousness. That I, I, I don't say no to things like that. Mm. So, yeah, I, I went and straight away dropped in it pretty much. I was in a peat swamp forest. Mm -hmm. So uh, that kind of habitat is hard. And, and that, again, that appeals to me. The whole area um, is peat, which we, now, you know, we know yeah. it's carbon 
sequestration. It's locking up a lot of carbon. It's very wet. There's a bit of history the mm. the the government had decided in their <laughs> in their wisdom to cut canals into this peat to drain it to try and make it you know usable as as um, farming land, obviously loads of defore deforestation. So cutting down the trees, but draining the peat, absolute, you know, the most horrific thing you could possibly do. Drained peat becomes just basically something that wants to burn. Mm -hmm. So they created this tinderbox and every year, um, basically loads of Southeast Asia and a lot of Borneo, it just burns, you know, fires start, the peat emits, tons and tons of co2 into the atmosphere and mm -hmm. you know the climate is is being wrecked partly because of it you know that these ill-informed ill-educated decisions that are made up high to help people are you know often absolutely the wrong thing to do so anyway this wonderful project um back then called otrop the um orangutan tropical um, research project um it was all about the Sabangau National Park. So they'd managed to preserve, or permission to preserve this gorgeous area of peat swamp forest, um, which was home to the largest um, population of, of wild orangutans. So oh, wow. it, yeah, it was absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. um, and this uh, research station where I was based, they'd cut a transect system into the forest and there were scientists there who were going out following orangutans every day, doing orangutan nest surveys. Um, we were also looking at the, the trees themselves. We were looking at fruiting data. We were taking measurements. Um, I led students to do, I, I didn't say, I was basically, my role was to do similar in that I did in the youth project. I was coordinating the youth, um, uh, not necessarily youth, but I was coordinating the young people that were coming out to do their research in the forest. So it was a, a volunteer type program, but they were usually students from universities and they were coming out with their little projects, um, which were all wonderful and interesting and varied. Um, and they were getting involved within all the research that was going on, but also implementing their own um, research if that was their goal. So we did butterfly capture release. We mm -hmm. did all sorts of wonderful projects. Um, and yeah, we would be out every day in these tough conditions. No leeches, thankfully, <laughs> but plenty of mozzies. Um, you know, we were walking miles and miles and miles into this humid peat, uh, peat swamp forest, um, collecting data all day long, coming back absolutely sweaty, exhausted. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> you know, people think that sounds terrible, but it was just wonderful that mm. that in there doing frontline stuff, um, but not just that, supporting other people in their journeys to be conservationists. Like it couldn't be more perfect. It was mm. wonderful. But like all good things, it came to an end. It, it was a seasonal thing. Mm. Um, so, I enjoyed my time there and then came back to the UK and, you know, suddenly, whoa, this is a very different environment and you have to readapt. Yeah. So it was like, okay, what, what can I do? I'm here. What, what jobs can I get in conservation? And that was harder. You know, there's, there's now I'd say a lot more competition, but back then quite a bit of competition for, for jobs in conservation. Mm -hmm. um, is that something you've ever found? Like, yeah, well, I, I remember I was really annoyed actually, because I applied for some jobs 
with the Wildlife Trust. Oh, really? I didn't get them. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, I did. When I was, yeah, oh. but I was like just starting in my career. Yeah. So like I was yeah. still very, very like junior and I hadn't really, I think it probably would have been my first proper job, mm. I would have thought. So, you know, I'm not surprised I didn't get it really. But um, at the same time, I really wanted it. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> but I, I've been very, very lucky and I've been luckier than most because I'm quite loud, I think. Um, and I've, I've been to a lot of the jobs I've had, I've been offered, not applied for. Um, and a lot of them have been through meeting people. Yes. Like I've been to lots of conferences and I've kind of gone, well, hang on a minute, like actually, surely we should think about this this way or whatever. Um, and just sort of stood up and said it. Mm. And being like, and quite often I'd be the only young person at a lot of these things. Mm. Yeah. And there'd be a lot of directors of companies and all of this type of thing there. And they'd sort of say, actually, you know, who do you work for? And I'd say, oh, I don't work for anyone. <laughs> um, and they'd be like, oh, well, why don't you come work for us? So, um, you know, I was really lucky in, in that respect. Um, and that's happened a few times where I went to see companies to find out what they were doing. And, yeah. you know, I sort of said, oh, actually, do you have a job? Any jobs? And they were like, oh, actually, yeah. You know, do you want, <laughs> how about next very week? very confident. So, um, yeah. you know, I was quite lucky in that I kind of had that confidence to mm. go and do that. Um, but also I was very lucky to meet a lot of these people. And I'm not really a believer in fate, but I, I do seem to have a habit of just bumping into people in obscure places. Mm. Um, you know, and it, it happens I think, quite I think frequently. that feeds into my change thing. I think if you put yourself out there... If, if you're going stale, if you see things aren't happening and you put yourself out there and you're confident mm. and you meet people, always you have a conversation. Like that communication is so key. You start talking to someone and invariably, you know, if they've got something in common, if they're, you know, if there's something happening and you show willing, even, I don't know, those little connections, they start to add up. And I mean, this podcast shows clearly like there's links massive yeah. links to it and then you start knowing the main people and the main industries and who does what where and it all starts fitting together and yeah if you're not going to engage in that if you're not going to be the person that steps forward and makes themselves known it's it's much much harder it is it absolutely is and um you know it, as you say you've got to get out there and, and do these things unfortunately you do have to get out there and do these do. things that don't just fall in your lap yeah um you know, one, one great example is I went to a Royal Forestry event and um, we were talking about forestry as, as we, as what you do at these events. And I was talking to this one lady in the car park and she said, oh, actually, um, I've just bought a farm. Um, and I was <laughs> like, oh, okay. Did. And she said, um, do you want to come and look after it for me? And she offered me a job and a house. So, and then I moved in like two weeks later, I think. So, and I moved into this farm and, um, you know, helped look after the farm for a few months. So, nice. you know, um, yeah, it's, right that was a great experience. Right, right place, right time. Yeah. Um, you know, and Ted, who we had on the podcast, um, fascinating guy, really famous in the tree and environmental world. He's in character in books and all this type of thing. Mm. Uh, met him at one of the same events, you know, and met the people um, that we ended up going to Costa Rica with. And then I went to um, Northeast America again on another trip and I met lots of really interesting people there. Mm. Um, you know, but again, I'm, on one of those trips, I met the director. Mm. I'm not sure if he's still the director, but one of the directors of Westenburg Arboretum, which oh, yeah. is National Arboretum. And then he was like, oh, well, why don't you get... Actually, actually, <laughs> when I went to America, I was it was the middle of my dissertation. And I thought, actually, dissertation is not that important. So I'll leave that. And I went to America instead to look at all this, what they were doing to respond to a lot of the challenges they've got there. Um, and I met this director and then he was like, oh, why don't you organize some trips? And I came back and then we sorted some trips out with the university. So we did some trips to Westenburg Arboretum to have a look around there. So, Just you know, happens. again, it's a, yeah. a lot of opportunity to just meet people yeah. and sort of actually take people up on their offer as well because I think a lot of the time people say things and you often think oh they don't really mean it mm. um, but my view is if they've said it 
It's kind of like a promise. <laughs> so um, if you said you, if you say yeah, something, why don't you do this? I, you know, I, I do hold people to things. So, um, you know. Um, so careful what you say around Niall. Yeah, careful what you say around me, exactly. <laughs> um, like with this podcast, a lot of people said, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, we'll come and chat on it. And I was like... And here I have to be. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and not only that, we've come to where you live. So you have no, no, no chance to escape. Um, you know, but if you don't do that, things don't happen. Um, you know, and I think a lot of people appreciate that too and that's again yeah, that's why i've do. ended up in the positions i have done because mm-hmm. you know for the landscape institute i became one of their um, on their board of directors and the well, board of trustees sorry um and i was the first non-chartered person on that board um then i became the rep to the international federation of landscape architects and had a seat on the world and european council mm-hmm. you know there's not many other 20 year olds that, <laughs> uh, that have done those things so well 24 or whatever i was 23 something like that so um but it's only because I would push and yeah, yeah. find myself in these situations yeah, and I always thought and I've always had this view of I want to make more of a difference how do I get to the next thing to kind of have an impact and now it's this podcast you know we've mm. kind of reached a point where I thought well actually if other people are not going to do this I'm going to do it mm. because otherwise it's not going to happen so um you know and that's kind of the mentality I've got now I think people see the honesty as well I don't think you can fake that mm. I think if you've got passion and drive People can feel it and and they understand it, so they they will give you the opportunities. I don't think you can really fake that. I think it's easy to see the people that are kind of maybe either just doing it for themselves rather mm. than doing it for the environment, or or they're just really not that into it, and it's maybe just a job for them. I don't know. Yeah, perhaps. I think there's mm. definitely that too. I think there's definitely that too. But I think it, people are driven by different things as well. I know some people that are very, very compassionate, mm. but it holds them back. Yeah, um, and they actually—I don't think they could necessarily do as much as they could because they're too compassionate. Yeah. And me, I'm very frustrated. Yeah. And you know, people ask me what drives me, and I used to think maybe it was fear. I was worried about what's going to happen in the future. I've just had a baby. Yeah, um, you yeah. know, I really want to make sure there's a good world for her, and she can do the things I've had the chance to do. But at the same time, I'm really pissed off that things are not being done properly. And I just get to a point where I just think, for God's sake, you know, I'll just do it myself. Um, You know, and I think I've kind of developed more of that mentality, which also caused me a lot of problems in education, especially with unions and things. Um, But at the same time, you know, look what we're achieving, what we're doing. You know, it's, you know, those things can be really valuable as well if you can point them in the right direction. It takes all people. It really does. Yeah, it does. We need a mix of mentalities and approaches. And a lot of people in the environment are quite, um what's the word quiet i say quiet I, um, I i know many i think you have like you need all personalities you do, people on yeah. the front line but there are people like the most intellectual um knowledgeable and passionate people i know in conservation are the naturalists they mm. are absolutely obsessed with the things that they're interested in and they are committed to it and it's wonderful to see and like they don't they don't need to go out there talking to everyone and anyone because that's their thing and that's what they want to do and yeah it there is this the space for everybody there is yeah there there absolutely is and we have to have everybody because there's such a myriad of things to do and it's really important but i think the one thing i've noticed is i don't think there's enough people that are really loud (laughs) um (laughs) Um, which is again I think why I've been quite lucky because mm. again I put myself in these positions and there's not so many other people that do mm. or there are but they're in very niche areas or, or are already very you know sort of specialized or whatever so yeah. I think people that are 
introverted as well. I was looking for. I think a lot of people are quite introverted, um, and I think that you know that creates a big opportunity for people to come in and really shake things up and and help move things along and support those people and all mm. that type of thing. Mm. Um, you know, so it's interesting. It's interesting to see how it all mm. pan out. Yeah, absolutely. But um, the next thing I wanted to ask you about really was um, your kids, <laughs> because yeah. I have to say, I look at how you've raised your kids in, in all, really, because obviously I've got a little six-week-old baby. Um, seven weeks, God. Seven weeks now. Christ, it's gone quick. Yeah. Remember the last week's gone. Um, and, you know, I really want her to, you know, have a... To be honest, I want to try and raise her in a similar way to have you raise your kids because I think it's really important and it's really amazing to see. And, you know, the pictures you sent, you post are fantastic. <laughs> you know, there's one I actually... Um, I've meaning to ask if I can use it in presentations, but there's one... Um, I always remember, um, and I always show it to my wife, is um, you and the kids in your canoe on top of a um, <laughs> A very aqueduct. high aqueduct. Yeah, very high aqueduct. Yeah, that was yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah, so I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about the adventures you've gone on. You've, been in, you've, you've written for a book as well. Yeah, um, yeah. Which I haven't read yet, but um, right. it's on my list. Um, <laughs> about adventures with the kids and all this type of thing. So yeah. if you could just tell us a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So going back a little bit, I guess. So... Came back to the UK, working, worked with the Wildlife Trust. Whilst I was working with the Wildlife Trust, I was of an age of having children. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> had kids, as you do. Um, worked for me. Um, and I wasn't going to change my life just because I had kids. And I totally appreciate that some people have to, and all children are different. But I was determined whatever happened that I would continue to live my life the way I wanted to live my life, somewhat selfishly, probably. Mm. Um, that's up for debate, really. <laughs> but um, they've turned out all right so far, so I'm <laughs> quite happy with my choices. Um, so, yeah, I, I started off just straight, like, okay, I'm, I'm quite a nurturing person as well, so it's not like mm. straight away I was like, right, they've got to sleep through the night, we're going to just cart them off to other people so I can go out having adventures. That's not me. I, I love children not always, I did it always when I was younger, but, yeah. you know, I, I've, you know, I've been very much involved with young people, children, teaching and, and you know, informally, formally. Um, so when I had my own, it was a no brainer that they would come and do all those things with me. It wasn't, it wasn't me and them, we're together. So we just started small, you know, it was stick them in a carrier and still get out there yeah it's harder it's so much harder that's my advice to you don't <laughs> give up because it's hard yeah but it's your outlook at the end of the day and if you know it's going to get better and that the more you do it the more they're going to find that a normal thing to do then you will have I think less trouble down the line um so yeah we've done lots of adventures we you know, when they were little, we camped with them. Um, we actually avoided kayaking and canoeing when they were really tiny. Um, but we, we travelled, you know, we, we didn't stop travelling. Um, travel's a big part of my life. Um, where was the first? We started, we started quite small, I suppose. We went to um, Madeira. We went to some islands. We did adventurous things while we were there, lots of hiking. Um, but with some off days, but as they got a little bit bigger, not much bigger, we went mm. to place like Sri Lanka. You know, it's like let's just let's just try, mm. and it was hard. Like looking back on it, we you know we coped, and we enjoyed the country still, and we enjoyed all the experiences. 
but we pushed the kids maybe a little too hard. I think Perry was maybe one and a half and Thorne would have been, sorry, so Perry, Peregrine, Thorne, strange names, but the nature link. So <laughs> Peregrine was maybe one and a half, Thorne was like, um, so he would have been three and a half. And they were hot, they were like sick for a lot of it at the start. Mm -hmm. They were laying in bed, sort of feverish. Mm. We worried a lot. We were kind of, shall we get a doctor? We tried to make all the right decisions. We moved to a cooler, hilly area and things got better. Like we, we just, we never plan anything. It was very much go to Sri Lanka. Figure out when you're there. Figure it out when yeah. we were there. And it, it was fine. It, we made the right decisions. We kept them in mind the whole time. And ultimately, people there were incredible, extremely welcoming, helped with the kids. You know, it was, it was, it was very much backpacking and roughing it, mm. but with kids. And, we, and we, it, was, it was great. Mm. Looking back on it, it's hard, but great. And we just continued. I really had that dream to take them to Borneo, and we did it. We just thought, you know, we, why not? Mm. So, again, the, the, the Borneo story is the one I wrote about in the book is a Brad um, Travels Guide mm -hmm. collection of stories um, called Kidding Around. So they were looking for writers um, to contribute to a book of, of travel stories that were interesting and, mm -hmm. and about parents that were adventurous with their kids. So um, my particular story was about when we were in Borneo. So we literally had no plan. We, we, we booked a flight and I think we left within 10 days or something because we, we do things quite last minute. <laughs> hey, why not <laughs> make it even harder? So we booked a flight. We got to Borneo. We had our first night booked because you can't turn up somewhere without, without somewhere to sleep. And we, I had a rough idea of what we'd like to do, but we had nothing booked. So yeah, we arrived. We started journeying across. We were in Sabah, so we were in Malaysian Borneo at this mm. time. And we wanted to get across... Um, to, oh, I can't remember. Um, well, we were into the Kinabatangan ah. River, which is this beautiful stretch of river. And geez, I, to mention, when I went back to Borneo, it changed so dramatically. Mm -hmm. It was horrendous to see. We, would, we were driving on, we just got on public buses and we were on these public buses going past miles and miles and miles of, of palm oil plantations. Mm. And there was, a lot of logging when I was there. I remember when I was 20 and first there, the logging, like it being like we could, at that stage, we could only really use logging roads to get into the forest. Mm -hmm. There was not much infrastructure. It was less developed. When I returned with the kids, it was so different. And I'd been back previous to that as well. I'd been there before that um, and returned. But this time it, it was so developed and, mm. and destroyed and it was horrendous. Anyway, I digress. We were we were on this bus going to the Kinabatangan River to do this jungle camp, as you do with little mm -hmm. kids. Um, and we had no idea when our bus was going to arrive. We were just sat in the burning hot sun waiting for this bus all day long. And I wrote a story about waiting for a bus, basically, <laughs> because how many people do that? How yeah. many people would take that risk these days to backpack and travel to a country and just sit and wait for a bus and be not actually that sure if they were going to get where they wanted to go that night. So we wait all day. This bus that the locals had told us was going to come didn't come. We waited in the sun a bit longer. We found somewhere to get some lunch and we were in the middle of pretty much nowhere at that point. It wasn't, 
wasn't a city, it wasn't anything. So, um, but it was great. You know, those <laughs> days are the most memorable. <laughs> Strangely, yeah. the people that walked by and asked if we were okay, the people that just helped out, all mm. the little things that happen. We eventually got on the bus way, way, way later than we even kind of thought we should, thinking, well, we'll probably still get there. At this point, I should say we'd booked um, a night in this. So we'd been called the day before to this place that was amazing, a cooperative in the middle of the jungle. Um, and they they ran this little kind of lodge, this little camp mm-hmm. on this lovely Oxbow Lake. So we were heading there and they were expecting us and we knew that we wouldn't immediately get there. When we got there, we had to get in a boat to get to the camp in the middle of the forest. It's like, are we actually going to make this? Well, let's just go. We'll be fine. So we got on this bus and there was no seats. Well, there were the ones right at the very back at the emergency exit, Mm. which was closed with a piece of string that kept swinging open. (laughs) No joke. So we were sat on these seats, two little kids, And this door kept opening next to us, literally next to us. A pair of the driver's pants hanging on the window curtain, like literally yeah. where they were drying in the sun. I was like, hey, it's an adventure. And the toilets, like it was the back of the bus, toilets right there that absolutely stank. Mm. So it was an eventful journey and took a long, long time. And um, we got there in the dark and we managed to find our hosts and um, amazing people. And they said, oh, you know, we, we might probably not going to be able to get out to camp. You might have to just stay in the local village for the night. Well, that's fine. doesn't bother us. Whatever works. Um, you know, we can pay for a bed somewhere, whatever. And they said, no, do you know what? We, c- we can take you. And it was dark, <laughs> like actually dark. We had our head torches on at this point. I don't know what the time was, maybe like 8 p.m. because it gets dark around, mm-hmm. you know, 6 o'clock. Um, I said, yeah, go on then. <laughs> Why not? Let's do it. And it was amazing. We all put on little life jackets. The kids were awake. They'd already been asleep in the, and they woke up and they were like, where, where are we going? Are we going? What? Mm. <laughs> we're going on a boat. Oh, okay. Because they're pretty resilient. You yeah. can imagine. Like they've been built to be pretty resilient. Um, so we're in this boat and we're going down a river in the pitch black in the Borneo jungle. And, you know, looking around, there's crocodiles everywhere. <laughs> is amazing Mm -hmm. you know that you you got this experience that you would not have got if you had booked a holiday to Borneo you Mm -hmm. know and that's what's important to us the reality and the adventurousness and giving our children those experiences that um I I got I mean talk about privilege you know I'm talking about that we are so lucky to have mm. these experiences in our, our memories, but our children hopefully will have these incredible memories. Even if they haven't got vivid memories of it, it will build their characters. Yeah. So yeah, we got to this camp, we had an amazing time. <laughs> it was great. They walked their socks off. They just, mm. they're little troopers. And everything we do is like that. Like you said, we've borrowed a, an origami car, a canoe. Mm. We, we didn't Not know paper, how to- I hope. It wasn't paper, but it was near enough. You know that kind of plasticky kind of corrugated material? Oh, yeah. Basically that and some straps. And we said, yeah, we'll give it a go. So we borrowed it, constructed it. We didn't have instructions. Put it together. We're pretty handy, so that was fine. And then we all paddled across the highest aqueduct up in Wales. <laughs> I can't pronounce it. Ponticlister or something. Um, 
yeah, adventures, little adventures, mini adventures. When you have kids, you have to make the most of all that time um, yeah. because there's so many good things that you can do and enjoy. Micro adventures at home, big adventures abroad. We'll put an end to that recently, but mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's important in my opinion, and, and we've been able to keep doing the things we love, but together, it's great. Yeah. No, it's really important. I keep saying, me and the wife keep saying, you know, the Elisa has got to conform to our lifestyle, not the other way around. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's kind of the mentality we're taking with her is she's going to have to just do what we do. Mm. You know, maybe not right now because she's only six weeks old, seven yeah. weeks old. Um, but, you know, soon. <laughs> yeah. Soon she will conform to our yeah. lifestyle. And, uh, you know, she's going to have to travel as well because, I mean, my wife's family are in Belarus, mm. near Chernobyl, and, um, well, near the exclusion zone, and which is a nightmare to get to. <laughs> Um, and then um, it took us like 36 hours last time to get there. It's just wow. such a nightmare to get. Considering it's in Europe, it's yeah. ridiculous. Um, and now we can't even fly into the country because the air travel's banned. Yeah. Um, so it's even more complicated. We've got to go to Moscow, then go, then get the bus, and then get another bus. Um, but her other family live in Saint Petersburg, which is only a few hours away. So she, we're spending two months there this year. Well, question: so, What do you do when school rears its ugly head? <laughs> that's a good question this is um, a this is a thing i think a lot of people that are adventurous and want to work abroad travel abroad what do you do once school comes around i don't know i think um she'll have to go to school because the big problem is i don't think me or yulia will have time to sort of homeschool her really yeah but we are also thinking of sending her to study in russia okay because um not because we want all of our free time back, that'd be nice, <laughs> but because we think it's really important and the Russian schooling is very different to the British schooling. And I have to say, um, I'm really impressed with like a lot of the Russian kids, like they are on it and they're really like motivated. It's like yeah. a very different, they have a very different mentality to what we do. Yeah. Um, and I think that mentality is really, it's more my mentality, I think. And my wife certainly has that mentality as well, yeah. very hard. Kind of. I'm not saying it's all good, but I think um, the approach and the and what they learn is I think it's more advanced than what we learn here. Okay. And a lot of the degrees and well, I'm not saying I want her to study in Russia either. She obviously make her own choice, but mm. I think a lot of the degrees and things, even the it's a very difficult decision and it's going to be a very political decision for people. Um, leave some comments if you like, but I think <laughs> the degrees are probably better, but they're not okay. recognised here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a very difficult decision. You know, um, I think the education in some ways is more practical. It's more of a practical education than mm. we get here, which is more esoteric. There's a lot of those values that I really want her to kind of pick up. Yeah, it's all about values. Um, mm. So we, I think we're going to try and spend a lot of time between. But it might be that she spends summer in Russia and summer and Christmas. So we might spend a couple of months or a month or so in summer and then Christmas mm. as well. Mm. Um, and the rest of the year she'll be, she'll be here. It certainly gets difficult. Um, it, life does change. Not necessarily just once you have kids, but once schooling becomes a thing. Because if you, I've, I, a lot of people, you know, they, they world school, you know, it's just traveling and they um, think that the experience of travel is enough of an education. I mm. totally appreciate that. I, I respect that opinion. I just don't think I could do it myself because I have yeah. a quite a fond memories of school and, um, the formality of schooling isn't abhorrent to me. Um, like it is for some people, it's an easy decision for them. They don't, you know, they can homeschool and things because they maybe had bad uh, experiences of school or 
but for me I, I I think school is a great benefit to me so I find mm. it hard to think about taking them out of school however I would very much like to travel long term with them at some point mm. if that becomes an opportunity um yeah if that opportunity arises yeah it's interesting as well with home working because I mean me and my wife both have our own companies yeah. Yeah. so I'm very lucky that I can work from anywhere um I do I worked from Russia two months last year because we got stuck there because of coronavirus so I yeah. had no choice um so, but that was fine because our company was set up before COVID to be a virtual company, basically. Yeah. So we always have worked wherever we are. Mm -hmm. So we're very lucky. Um, and, you know, but my partner, she, her business, well, um, is, um, well, she works full time, but she has like a side business, um, is, is making stuff, you know, leather stuff, belts, mm. braces, mm. handbags, that type of thing. And obviously we can't do that when we're away. So that throws up a slight mm. challenge really. So there is still a bit of a challenge there. And obviously she works for a proper company as well. Um, and, you know, she can work from home and she does, and she probably will continue to, but a lot yeah. of big companies have lots of rules about working abroad, yeah. especially when it comes to Russia and yeah. um, Belarus. Um, like for example, Belarus, you're not allowed to take encrypted ah. laptops into, mm. um, and they'll be destroyed at the airport. Interesting. So. Um, that's a big problem because we tried to work there the other year. I did because I don't have an encrypted laptop, but she was working on government projects. So oh, right. she couldn't. So, you know, Cracky. it becomes, um, yeah. which is a, an irony. <laughs> yeah. 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 The Russian citizen working on. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, um, it's, um, you know, it's interesting. So, you know, lots of different challenges, but they're all, they're all achievable and it's just how much you, you push. And then maybe you look at other countries, you know, we, Again. we've been looking to buy a house um, and, you know, I'm 28. My wife's recently moved to the UK from, she's from quite a poor background, shall we say. Um, neither of us really have a great deal of money. So we're in a very difficult position where you think actually do I buy a house and actually mm. look at the houses here mm. and you look at the houses in Russia, you can get a hell of a lot more for your money in hmm. Russia. Um, it's, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, and you start thinking, well, actually, do we live here? Do we live there? And then you start thinking, well, actually, if we live in Europe, you know, Italy or somewhere, again, a lot of good value for money. It's quite an interesting environment as well. Mm. Um, you know, maybe we look at working somewhere like that and working remotely because our job elections work remotely. So, you know, I think that's going to have a really big impact as well. And I know an awful lot of people that are sort of thinking the same thing. Yeah. Do <laughs> we carry on working the way we are? Do we move away? Because actually, okay, there's your support network and things which are really important, but yeah. actually 90% of the time, you're still, you're still you and your family, mm. um, isn't it? So it's kind of like, how do we think about those things? What are the options? And that's what we're working on at the moment. You know, we're looking at alternative options to try and get the best of both, both worlds by building a house. I think you need to learn to adapt mm. massively. It's about being able to adapt to all sorts of situations. I mean, I took the quite traditional, I suppose, decision to, when I had my, both of my children, um, I decided to stay at home for a while and enjoy mm. them and bring them up for a little while, not too long, you know, like an extra year on top of maternity. Um, but then you have that kind of worry of, oh, I'm a, a woman with children out of conservation industry, which is really hard to get work in. How am I going to stay out for long without it affecting my career? And that's mm. something, you know, even now, I, I worry a little about, um, I, I decided that I would go back to work after that extra year kind of thing, 
um, actually because I was really missing my work. I'm very fortunate and I love the job I do. Um, at that stage, I decided to, to get involved in formal education. So I started teaching. I started teaching um, conservation, um, environmental conservation mm -hmm. um, to apprentices. So it was, it was perfect. It was part-time. It suited me very well. Um, really enjoyed, again, the education, the, the connection with um, the outdoors and getting the conservationists of the future, you know, trained up really um and that is kind of yeah it's it's kind of how do you keep adapting to ensure that you are able to be there for the children do the adventurous amazing things you want to do in life and also you know stay in your career it's it's a it's a tough one i'm still figuring it out <laughs> <laughs> but you say about yeah i i would consider taking things abroad you know if, but yeah things become more important the family aspect and having um your family around mm. for, and and the children having the people they love around things like that it's all it becomes quite complicated it does i mean it's not easy mm. it's not easy and i don't think it will ever be easy until the kids grow up probably <laughs> yeah absolutely but it's yeah. all a challenge but yeah. yeah well it's been fantastic talking to you me too and hearing your stories and um, thank you so much for having us. And um, such a lovely place. It certainly is today. Is, Look just, at that. Outside, just outside Winchester. Beautiful. Um, where you're based. So, um, yeah. yeah, thank you for having us here. Thank you. For and um, it's been wonderful to see you again. Thanks, Mel. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt, but this episode is sponsored by Water Offsets. If you are working on projects where you might need environmental credits, then they are the people to go to. They specialize in not only biodiversity net gain credits, but also water neutrality and nutrient neutrality too. So if you have an estate, a farm, or some other kind of landowner, um, or interested in that kind of project, then they could really help you find you know, new ways of funding those projects and diversifying your land and farms take you through the whole process. And if you're a developer who's run into problems, then actually they can help provide those credits that you need to unlock your land and get your development done. So check out Water Offsets if you need help with any of those things. Many thanks. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you're interested in finding out more about how the environment and people are interlinked and want to find out more about engaging different groups of people with the natural world, then maybe check out our episode with Judy Lingwong where we talk about just that. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share to friends and colleagues who might be interested in the series. And a huge thank you to our sponsor, Water Offsets, and our incredibly kind supporters, Gillian Goodson Design and the Birmingham Botanical Gardens. And of course, NDLA and Monster Don for powering this episode. <laughs>